what I see viscerally in my work is uh, girls of color in low-income areas just having a pretty barren landscape. Like, like as in, you know, middle or high school, okay, maybe you have three levels of boys basketball and you have one of girls basketball and they're turning away girls who are trying out. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. I am just now beginning year 19 in the classroom. And this here, of course, is all of the above, where we like to take a deep dive into important issues in education with an unstandardized take on what's going on out there in the education streets. And Jeff, it's been... It's been a, a, a decent length summer, I guess. Summer's never long enough, but of course, during summer, we're each uh, pretty busy. There's only a two-person operation, so I'm busy with uh, taking vacations and having a break. And then you're busy with, you know, super duper principal leader man type stuff over the summer. But, um, you know, it's been a couple weeks since we've had a full episode. Here we are again with a super dope guest and all that good stuff today. And Jeff, as the summer comes to a close, any any thoughts about either how summer is gone or what you're excited about for this upcoming school year. Wow. Well, uh, you know, I will say, Manuel, my, the rhythm of my work, the schedule of my work mm -hmm. is very different than it was when I was, a, you know, when I was full-time at a school, when I was a principal or an AP or a teacher. Uh, and what is primarily different about it is that so much of my work over the summer is spent gearing up for some of the launch events for the upcoming school year. And I work year round. So summer isn't really vacation time right. <laughs> for me. It's kind of the most uh, intense or one of the most intense times of the year. So we are uh, about to get into our Summer Institute uh, next week. Um, by the time people see this, it'll be last week. I remember my times here. Something like that. But uh, suffice it to say, the beginning of August is a busy, hectic time. Um, so, And I'm also uh, trying to become a, a new homeowner, Dr. Ooh. Rustin. So... Uh, so that is honestly what, what is most exciting and stressful at the same time uh, in my life. But uh, in terms of the world of school, I will say I am hopeful, Manuel, that this summer was actually restful and rejuvenating for lots and lots and lots of educators across the country yeah. who've been catching hell for the last three years uh, during this pandemic. And, you know, it's not over, but hopefully we are at least entering into a phase of the pandemic that is not going to be so brutal on the work lives and personal lives, for that matter, of, of educators. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. And as you alluded to, we record these a little bit in advance because it takes time, of course, to edit all the video and all that. And by the way, by the way, folks, if you are somebody who listens to the audio version of this, I get it. That's what I do when I, you know, drive to work. But it still would be very beneficial if you head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe to our YouTube channel so we could get those numbers up a little bit. The link is right below um, this this podcast here. But in any case, as you alluded to, we record these a little bit ahead of time. And Jeff, there is a possibility that by the time this, this posts, maybe the pandemic will be over, Jeff. Maybe things will be nice and safe as we head back into the classroom. Um, maybe we'll actually, you know, get it together because, you know, it's, it's possible this can't be a third 
or fourth, I'm even losing track of how many years it's been of of pandemic related schooling. So maybe maybe it'll be solved in the next week or so, Jeff. Be hopeful. Be hopeful. Yeah, it's like I, I, let me clarify for you, Manuel. It's been two two and a half at this point. Okay. And uh, the upcoming Feels school like year would. Yeah, it does, though, doesn't it, right? Like, it's a little bit hard to remember the normal times. Uh, but, you know, we're going into a new year. Uh, there's hope, there's possibility, all of that. And uh, that's what I'm trying to center in my mind here. Dr. I like that. I like that. Yes. I'm down. I'm down. That works for me. That works for me. All right, Jeff. Well, we have a, a, a fully packed episode today. Can you break down what's on the agenda for us here? Oh, yeah, man. Well, we got a good one for everybody. And, you know, I always say that. Let's be real. But also, I always mean that when we get to this point uh, in the episode. We have a fantastic show for folks today. Really great discussion. Our seminar guest is just a, a dynamic, uh, intelligent, um, incredible leader activist. Uh, I'm not sure what all acronyms to put on it, but a person who is out here championing uh, and been working hard for the causes of gender equity in education, it is Kim Turner. She is the director of the Gender Equity Initiative at the Positive Coaching Alliance, which is a Bay Area-based nonprofit that uh, does a lot of work in different uh, kind of realms of uh, athletics and, uh, and coaching specifically. Um, but she is an attorney, has a great deal of expertise on uh, how Title IX has, and hopefully still will and still needs to, impact the cause of gender equity in uh, American education, K-12, higher ed, and of course beyond. Uh, now, it would be uh, remiss of us not to mention that also this year, 2022, marks the 50th anniversary of Title IX, this vitally important piece of legislation, arguably one of the most uh, impactful pieces of civil rights legislation in the history of the country, right? Like right up there with the, the big ones everybody learns about uh, in U.S. history class, right? Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act of 1965, right? I mean, th this is in that same realm uh, of monumental pieces of civil rights legislation and uh, has had tremendous impact uh, across um, the United States. And so we're going to dig deep into that today with Kim Turner. It is going to be a fascinating discussion, folks. You definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah. Sounds dope. Some Title IX dopeness in the building. Looking forward to that conversation, of course. And again, folks, if you are, well, actually, I, I didn't, I forgot to say this at the top. If you're brand new to all of the above, we appreciate having you here. And please do consider liking and subscribing and all that good stuff. All right, folks. So up next will be our Do Now, where we take a look at news and headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at some news in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, it is only fitting being uh, just about the start of the school year here in the greater Los Angeles area, uh, in the region of Southern California. Just about every district is either just open or just about to open. So uh, what do you do at the start of the school year, Manuel? You take lots of attendance and it's the worst time yeah. to take attendance because you don't know everybody's name yet and you mispronounce yep. stuff and you're trying to remember which stephanie is in which period or whatever so um anyways just reliving my traumatic classroom memories but uh <laughs> <laughs> we got a roll call today 
Okay, okay, for sure. Yeah, definitely got to get those names right, people. Yeah. Um, it's worth the time and effort and investment to get the names right. And yes, it is uh, also pretty tough when you are uh, just meeting everybody for the first time. And I remember a year where I had three sets, three sets of identical twins. And it took wow. a very long time for wow. me to figure out who was who. Yeah. In any case, all right, Jeff, who's first on today's roll call? Yeah, man. Well, okay. Uh, first on today's roll call is... More of a conceptual answer. It's the CEO, the chief executive officer. The CEO. Well, Jeff, this is a an education show where we talk about important things going on in America's education system. Um, CEOs is more of a business type thing. And importantly, we don't conflate business and profiteering with the important duty of educating our young ones. So I'm not quite sure why CEO is on the attendance today. Yeah, that was a lovely statement, Manuel, that um, is maybe like 50% true. <laughs> uh, we certainly have plenty of CEOs in, uh, in the field of education, uh, most notably, I would probably say, in the realm of charter schools. And we're going to talk mm. about a particular uh, former CEO of a charter management organization among the more sort of uh, well-known and, and celebrated charter management organizations uh, in the United States, certainly on the, on the East Coast in particular, uh, but that being Democracy Prep. We're going to talk about what their former CEO was getting into because it ain't good, folks. It ain't good. Mm. <laughs> All right, here we go. This story comes to us uh, from Kevin Mankin and Asher Lehrer Small, uh, writing for the 74 million. So shout out to them. And uh, the story tells us about Seth Andrew, who is the founder of the Democracy Prep Charter Schools and a nationally recognized champion of school reform. He was recently sentenced to a year and a day in prison for illegally taking more than 200,000 from the network he helped create. At his sentencing, Andrew acknowledged doing, quote, harm to democracy prep, end quote, and said he hoped, quote, future students can learn from my mistakes. Now, Andrew, who founded Democracy Prep in 2005 and served as CEO for much of the next eight years, was arrested last April and charged with wire fraud and money laundering. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said in a press release that the sentence would send a message to potential white-collar criminals. Quote, Andrew committed this crime to attempt to punish nonprofit charter schools because they declined his offer to return as their leader, said Williams. Thankfully, the victim of Andrew's crime was resilient and its important work continues. So, Manuel, we got uh, a story here. Noted charter network leader. Seth Andrew, very famous for those of us who spent time in New York City for him always rocking that democracy prep hat 24-7. Uh, uh, very noticeable in a room of educators in shirts and ties and suit jackets and whatnot. Uh, also getting a new type of uniform, which is not going to come with a democracy prep hat. Uh, so, Manuel, what do you think of here? Yeah, well, you know, I'm not familiar with democracy prep. I'm a West Coast guy and I'm a you know, traditional public school guys. So I don't know a whole lot about charters, but I do know we have reported 
many, many a time here on All the Above over the course of the years uh, producing this show of folks either within charter networks or associated with charter networks who have defrauded them and taken advantage of, of the funds there and taken the uh, public funds uh, for their own private benefit. So, you know, obviously we can't cast all charters. Obviously we're not casting all charters as as being uh, susceptible to this kind of white collar crime and corruption and def uh, defrauding. But but it's, it's not a good look when you have headlines coming out pretty consistently of, of folks within that realm um, stealing money, frankly. I think we reported on one like online charter that was just like making up student names, like mm. students that didn't even exist just to get money from them. Uh, this, of course, is a little bit different here. And it sounds like what, what uh, Seth did was try to get back into the uh, leadership structure of Democracy Now! And they weren't, or not Democracy Now!, Democracy Prep, <laughs> and they weren't having them. So, you know, out of revenge or out of spite, he went ahead and, and defrauded them and tried to inflate his own wealth in order to get a better, better mortgage rate for his $2.3 million Manhattan condo. And that strikes me as like a, wait, $2.3 million condo. I don't know what else this person does. You know, I'm sure Jeff, you know a lot more about him. So I don't know if he already, you know, has other things that he's involved in outside of education that generates a whole lot of money, but it's just, um, you know, just strikes me as really, I guess, curious that somebody in the realm of education would have the money to be buying a $2.3 million condo period. And I know partly by Manhattan standards, $2.3 million condo isn't even that, that crazy, but, um, it also strikes me that Seth was perhaps a little bit ahead of his time because the way things are looking with the privatization of our American public education system, as this war continues on public schooling and this war continues on, uh, on basically everything that is not in line with, uh, white Christian evangelism, it, it strikes me that he probably could have had more of an open path and green light to defraud uh, schools come, you know, maybe wait a, a couple more years when more of that public money is flowing through um, various school systems that are not necessarily uh, traditional public systems, because that that day is coming where this is all, all going to be really, really, really extra, extra messy and dicey for those of us who believe in quality schooling and integrity. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I think, Manuel, this is a fascinating uh yet another example, right, of uh, what we risk when we move to an increasingly privatized uh, system. Now, I will yep. be the first to say there are plenty of problems with our public systems, right? Um, and we still have a lot to do to fix. So lest we not cast stones in glass houses, right? Uh, I'm just going to stipulate that from the beginning. However, I will say, Manuel, one thing that at least all the school systems where I have any level of insight and familiarity with that is true is it is exceedingly hard to embezzle money, uh, which is effectively what he did here. I know it was wire fraud, right? But like effectively, he's finding a right. way to take personal money uh, or to take money from the organization into his personal coffers and whether he spent it or whether he just used it to inflate his wealth and get a better you know, mortgage rate, in, in the way our our economy works, Manuel, those two things aren't actually all that different, right? Like Correct. if you are paying hundreds or maybe thousands of dollars less a month, I don't know what your interest, you know, what what half a point on an interest rate does when you're borrowing $2.3 million, okay? I'm, I'm not in the market for 2.3, let's just be clear. Uh, and I don't embezzle, so funny coincidence. Um, all that to say though, Manuel, this, public school systems are very good at making sure that kind of thing 
doesn't happen or is at least exceedingly difficult to make happen. There might be folks in public education who somehow figure out a way to hire their cousin uh, you know, to serve in a role or who bring all their friends when they're hired into a, you know, a position and you know, people complain of nepotism and this kind of thing. And those things are real and worth talking about, right? But you generally don't see stories like this in actual public education because there are checks in place that prevent it, right? Like it's not actually uh, that difficult to make sure it doesn't happen it, what is true is that in privatized context, those rules don't apply. And so there is enough wiggle room there where people can do these kinds of things and it creates uh, just, you know, the potential for greed, the potential for, you know, corruption uh, to kind of take root in that way. And so it's not a surprise, I think, when we see these sorts of uh, things happen uh, in charter networks, because the reality is they're starting to function in the kind of corporate sphere where, you know, the incentive structure starts to work in a way that says, hey, get away with everything you can get away with right? Because uh, that's the nature of the market, right? There's no morality here. It's just do as much as you can to maximize your, your own profit. Uh, and so that, I think that is part of the danger uh, of the folks who are leaning on charters as the transition phase from public education to private education um, and really want to ultimately see a situation where what we have is publicly funded private education, right? So, you know, this, I think, is it is a um, canary in the mine shaft, you know, one of many canaries in the mine shaft to say we should probably pump the brakes on this rightward shift, this privatization shift in education. I am not personally a categorically anti-charter person. I want to state that again for the record here. I think there's many charter schools doing great work and we can ensure we can do things to ensure that are not necessarily overly onerous from a regulatory standpoint, that this kind of stuff doesn't or can't happen. Uh, and we have chosen not to do those things yet, Manuel. So uh, it's fixable. It's sad. Uh, you know, I hope that this doesn't actually trickle down to have harm on, on the young people uh, that these schools served. Yeah, absolutely. And there will be more of this. There will be more of this, as as you said, as we continue to shift towards a privatization of or private money into uh, schooling in general. There will be more of this period. And wouldn't be surprised to see some headlines out there about, uh, you know, new yachts and things going towards helping the the important yachting community that is out there that, of course, our friend Betsy is is a uh, esteemed member of because, you know, that's where this money tends to end up for some reason in some mm. way. Um, all right, Jeff, we have another name on today's roster because, of course, you know, we don't just have one. And, and as a classroom teacher, I know I'm going to have many, many names I'm going to have to go over uh, pretty soon in my classroom. But uh, today's second and last name for today's Do Now is LeVar Burton. Ah, uh, nice, LeVar, my man, one of my, one of my uh, great television heroes. Uh, from my childhood, Manuel, and I, I, I need to go down just a very brief retrospective here on how <laughs> dope LeVar Burton was as a young person, and is, right? But I mean, especially at right. that era, right, when I was a young child, okay? I first got to know LeVar Burton on Reading Rainbow. 
perhaps greatest children's television show of all time. Just gonna put that out there. Come see me if you disagree, okay? Then, of course, where do we see LeVar Burton? Kunta Kinte, Roots, revolutionary Alex Haley television, okay? Amazing, life-changing, uh, industry-shifting, cultural phenomenon, okay, that, that was one of the great sort of truth-telling elements in American media at a time. If you go back and watch stuff in the 80s, man, well, it was racist as hell in the, in the 80s on, on TV, okay? Uh, so, LeVar Burton is Kunta Kinte roots, okay? Um, then, what happened? LeVar Burton, chief engineer, Geordie LaForge on the Star Trek uh, Next Generation series, okay? One of the great science fiction series of all time. One of the great science fiction franchises. Black man, chief engineer, flying around the universe, solving physics puzzles, okay? Uh, incredible. LeVar Burton, salute to you. That's all I have to say about that. That was lovely, Jeff. I think we're done here because I think I think that about <laughs> does it. We could end on that very positive note. Definitely got to give give that man his flowers because yes, Levar Burton, obviously so influential in so many of our lives. Um, the elder, the OG, um, very dope, very dope. And of course, this story here, since this is an education show, we're going to focus on the reading aspect of you know our our literacy king, Levar Burton, and sort of where we are these days, where young people are in this modern context with regards to reading and how they access uh, materials. All right, so this is a, an interesting study looking at students or young people around the world with regards to their reading of print text versus digital text. All right, so let's get into it. This story comes to us from the Heckinger Report by our OG homie, Jill Barche. Not homie, we haven't met Jill, but we have uh, leaned on Jill's reporting for, for quite some time. So shout out to Jill, um, super, super dope education reporter out there. And she reports that an international study by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development found that students who had more books at home reported that they enjoyed reading more. Teens who read more paper books scored higher on reading assessments. The study spanned approximately 30 countries and looked at data from the Program for International Student Assessment, known as PISA. Researchers found that teens who said they most often read paper books scored a whopping 49 points higher on the 2018 PISA than teens who said they rarely or never read books. That's equal to about 2.5 years of learning. By comparison, students who tended to read books more often on digital devices scored only 15 points higher than students who rarely read. That's a difference of less than a year's worth of reading. In other words, all reading is good, but reading on paper seems to be linked to vastly superior achievement outcomes. So Jeff, the world is changing. I watched a lot of Reading Rainbow as a child, and yes. I do not recall. I do not recall LeVar pointing me to a, a new e reader or Kindle or any kind of like digital anything really. Um, so times have changed, times have changed. What are your thoughts about this study and this, this difference in reading scores for folks who read primarily print materials versus folks who are more likely to read digital materials? Yeah, man, this is, this is fascinating data. And I feel like I need to quote the theme song of Reading Rainbow right here, uh, Manuel, as I frame my response, because, you know, folks know butterflies in the sky, right? I mean, it's amazing. Come on, man. The little like, what are the, what's the little <laughs> sound in the background of that theme song? I can't even like mimic it, but it's some like sort of weird electronic 80s sound. I want you to try. I want you to try to mimic it. I can't. I don't even know how to make that sound with my <laughs> mouth. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but towards the end, right, what are the lyrics? Take a look. It's in a book. It's reading rainbow, okay? 
Now, of course, that song was probably written in like 1978 or something like that, right? But I will say, Manuel, it doesn't say, <laughs> take a look, it's in an iPad <laughs> or take a look, it's in yeah. a Kindle, okay? Now, children have been reading books, tactile, holdable, touchable, colorful, sometimes the little children ones where you, you know, you put your finger in and you move around the little, little cloth giraffe head or whatever, right? The sensory experience of reading is from the very earliest ages a fundamental, important aspect of connection with the text. Now, as you get older and we move from, you know, picture books to picture books with text to, you know, more young adult chapter books, right, um, to more just adult novels that might have hundreds of pages and no pictures, uh, certainly that perhaps levels the playing field between what kind of experience you can have on a Kindle or on some other e-reading device versus the kind of experience you can have with the physical text. But I still think, Manuel, that what, what this article is pointing to and that I think confirms a anecdotal, <laughs> albeit, uh, sense that I have of just experiencing young people in classrooms uh, in different settings, that there is something special and unique about the physical experience of holding a text, right? Um, it is tactile in a way that an e-reading device is not. It does not emit the light into your eyes that comes from screens that we know has an effect on brain function um, and that also can cause strain and stress um, on the eyes. And there's also something, Manuel, I think to the idea that when you're turning physical pages, you have a constant physical indication of making progress. And there's something in our minds that feels some measure of, you know, a little dopamine hit or whatever of like, wow, look how far I got today. You know, like I'm almost halfway through or whatever. Right. And you're not getting those same kind of indicators uh, as you are uh, with a physical book when you're engaging with an e-reading platform. Um, so it's not surprising to me at all, Manuel, that we would see this kind of distinction. Now, as a person who both has bookshelves full of books and a Kindle sitting, <laughs> you know, on my nightstand, albeit I haven't read it in quite some time, uh, I will say that, you know, I, there is probably some value in having both means of engaging with text available, letting students have some choice or engaging intentionally with one tool in a certain kind of setting another tool in another kind of setting. For example, when you travel, it's nice to have a Kindle and not have to pack your suitcase with a bunch of heavy books that you have to pay for at the, you know, at the airport, right? Um, but when you're home, which is where a lot of reading takes place, or when you're in school, which is where a lot of reading takes place, I think we should pay attention to the fact that there, there are some indicators we have here of real benefit for students engaging in actual physical texts rather than e-readers, Kindles, iPads, Chromebooks, etc. Yeah, there, there's that. I, I agree with you. I am an old, old head. I like like physical, tactile things. And I, I just am of the belief that everything you said is correct. There's something special about the actual physical printed text. And I, for one, prefer that for myself for sure. Um, but according to the study, I mean, there's a little bit of a, a correlation versus causation situation here mm -hmm. um, because the study wasn't able to, to go deep enough to really get to the bottom of, of why these um, results are what they are. Because for instance, um, a student or a young person who really loves to read, the folks, the adults around them might realize that they really love to read. And that 
a young person might be more inclined to get gifts that are books, like for their birthdays and celebrations and things like that. And perhaps they are more likely to read printed materials because more printed materials are made available to them because they love to read. So it might not be that the printed material leads to the boost in reading scores. It might be that the strong reader has more printed material around them and therefore their reading scores uh, are, go up. So, you know, so there's that possibility. More research, of course, needs to be done here. Importantly, digital text, just opens up a whole world to young people who perhaps wouldn't have been able to access that, especially lower income folks around the world. Uh, digital text just makes it so much easier for folks to access just great stories from around the world and through time, um, even if they don't have local libraries or, or printed materials um, within range to them. I know a lot of my students, my high school students, a lot of them spend their free time, their nutrition, lunch, uh, passing periods, reading like manga comics and things like that, like off their phone, like these digital uh, texts off their phone that they probably wouldn't be, I mean, they're bootleg, so that's a problem that is for another uh, discussion <laughs> another day. Um, but they wouldn't be able to access a lot of these materials if if they only had, you know, printed uh, or if, they, if it had to be in print. So, you know, yeah. digital, the digital space has, has come a very long way with providing folks around the world, especially lower income folks, um, with access to reading materials that perhaps they wouldn't have had in the first place. But the study does point out that the stronger readers also happen to have more printed text around them. So uh, there's still, you know, strong links between class and reading ability. And a lot of that, a lot of those gaps from before are, are still persistent today. So that's still, still there. What, what's troubling about the, some of the results of this study is that across the board, young people are also more likely to say nowadays than they were in the early 2000s, that reading is a waste of time. So the amount mm. of uh, young people who have, who have indicated that reading is a waste of time has gone up. I think it said like five percentage points or something like that. And for the first time since 2006, or reading scores generally are lower um, than they've been since 2006. So they're going down a bit. And of course, I think we could, us old heads, will probably attribute that, attribute that to just the change in media and so much uh, video access and, and so many other things going yeah. on besides what's in a printed book. So that's a bit troubling. But honestly, like we have so many other things that might might um, get in the way of human civilization before that reading situation even uh, comes up to the forefront. We'll see if we could get through this climate crisis and these multiple pandemics and all that, and then really have a reckoning with what digital devices and our internet connectivity has done to our ability to like read and interact and, and be humans. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up that last point in particular, Manuel, about, um, you know, kids expressing uh, effectively like less interest in reading. And it, it made me think a lot uh, about my own life as an adult, right? Like I for sure, Manuel, read fewer books today than at any point in, in my life. I would say the last five years of my adult life, been I've read the fewest books that I've ever read literally since I, since I learned to read at like three years old, okay? So, there is, uh, there is a shift I think we're seeing. And when I think about it, man, well, part of what I think about, and I, I'll be transparent, I don't have data around this. I hope someone is out here gathering this data. It's like, what are we really seeking when we read, right? A lot of what we're seeking is stories, right? To, to engage in the immersive experience of a story, to stimulate right. our imagination, right? To be entertained. Uh, to offer a chance to experience something vicariously through the, through the narrated experience of others, right? Uh, to be able to kind of step out of ourselves and some just fun and distraction, right? Um, now, if you stack all those things up, 
I don't think human beings are doing less of that today than, than we used to. I don't think I'm doing less of that today than I did at any other point in my life. I think maybe in some ways I'm even doing more of that today, but it's just not taking the form of books, right? It's taking the form of articles. It's taking the form of podcasts. It's taking the form of you know video. There's so many television channels, streaming services, et cetera, so much content, YouTube videos, all this kind of stuff, right? We're like, I am getting those experiences, those immersive experiences, those story, engaging with story. We as humans are storytelling creatures, right? I'm getting those experiences with other types of media. And so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm yeah. just telling my experience and, and, and that isn't true in the larger data set of humanity, but it is making me think about like, are we just seeing some evolution of how human beings meet the needs that we used to meet with books through other venues? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, that's a fantastic question actually. And I, I guess we will see, I mean, hopefully more, you know, data is collected and research is done about that because yeah, that, that, that's a fantastic point there. And I don't know, man. I still miss the days of just a couple TV channels yeah. and yeah. a couple things to focus on <laughs> at a time. I do miss those days and I will forever miss those days. The, the constant juggling of things happening and read, uh, to look at and to think about that constant juggling is, is, is tough, man. It's tough. It's tough. But yeah. All right. That about does it, folks. For today's Do Now, we talked about some uh, defrauding of a charter network and um, interesting reading study there. And now we're going to shift gears and dive deep into the impact, the long legacy of Title IX as it pertains to our education system here in the United States. And that'll be a super dope conversation with Kim Turner coming up next in today's seminar. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch, okay? All you gotta do is go to aotashow.com support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we just could not be more happy to have you here with us because we have a fantastic guest who's going to help us explore, I think it's fair to say, one of the more interesting topics in education for this entire 2022 calendar year, that being the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Um, and our guest today is Kim Turner. Welcome, Kim Turner, to All the Above. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. 
All right, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Uh, Kim Turner serves as the director of the Gender Equity Initiative at the Positive Coaching Alliance, advancing sports-based gender equity for girls, coaches, schools, youth sports stakeholders, and community programs. Kim has a decade of experience as a nonprofit Title IX attorney, including with Legal Aid at Work's Fair Play for Girls in Sports project. She presents and writes for diverse audiences on sports-based gender equity, Title IX, and related issues, and advocates for equity-spurring legislation, and provides technical assistance, resources, and tools. Before law school in New York, Kim worked for a United States senator and with the National League of Cities in Washington, D.C., Kim serves as an advisory council member for the nonprofit Bay Area Women's Sports Initiative and served as a member of the expert review panel for the Women's Sports Foundation's report, 50 Years of Title IX, We're Not Done Yet. Kim also coaches youth sports and played Division I college volleyball for Brown University. Welcome again, Kim, to all the above. Uh, so excited to have you here to unpack this uh, just incredibly rich topic for today. And I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Kim Turner in the building. Thank you so much for taking time out to be here with us here on All of the Above. Now, that that was some bio, so we know you have a lot going on. And th with this being the 50th anniversary of Title IX, we know you're particularly busy. So thank you for finding time uh, for being here with us here on All of the Above. Now, Title IX, of course, signed into law by fierce civil rights advocates, President Richard Nixon, um, was signed into law in 1972. And it's one of the most discussed pieces of federal legislation out there and also widely misunderstood in some ways. So I first want to start by just reading the the text of Title IX, which is just 37 words long, it reads, quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Now, those 37 words, of course, have led to extensive changes in American education. And we want to start by asking you, what do you think we tend to get right in our understanding of Title IX? And what do you think we tend to perhaps misunderstand or need to learn a little more deeply about with regards to what Title IX is? Yeah, thank you for that. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thrilled to talk about Title IX on its big birthday. Happy 50. And, you know, I hope the celebration won't just be this year. It'll be next year and for years to come. Um, but yeah, you know, in terms of what we've gotten right and what we need to maybe adjust or expand on the law, um, you know, I think a lot of folks understand that Title IX has opened a lot of doors for a lot of folks, especially girls and women in education. And I'll just, you know, quickly break it down for folks who don't know Title IX that well. Um, and I know there are going to be experts and they're going to be new folks. So Title IX basically says you can't have gender-based discrimination in federally funded educational programs. And, you know, what people get right is, oh, this is about athletics. You know, they know Title IX gave girls and women, for example, a lot of opportunity to play, say, high school and college sports, which it has done a great deal in that realm. Uh, but we also sense that it's more than that, right? And there's so much more than that. So some things that folks don't really realize is that Title IX, for example, um, some facts that I like to share with folks are it covers preschool to colleges and universities. So if you have a federally funded preschool program or elementary or middle or high school or college or university program, that's Title IX subject if it's getting federal funding, just a dollar of funding. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, in the millions. 
So if someone's in a middle school and they're having a gender-based uh, discrimination issue, Title IX would come into play if that was a federally funded program. Um, and then some other things that people don't realize about Title IX, some fun facts um, are that it was actually passed, as you mentioned, President Nixon, um, but this was a bipartisan effort, effort. And a lot of people these days with our you know, very uh, fractured political climate um, can't picture necessarily a lot of bipartisan effort, but this was a really wonderful bipartisan effort um, signed, signed into the law by President Nixon, but was sponsored by two senators, one of which was uh, Patsy Mink, who was the first woman of color to come into Congress um, from Hawaii. And she was a visionary. And a lot of people don't know that story. And thankfully, there have been a few articles and, and whatnot about her this year. But do, if you have a chance, Google, study, read about, talk in your classrooms about Patsy Mink, because she's an incredible role model who herself experienced gender discrimination. She applied to many medical schools and was not permitted to, to attend because she was a woman. And so she had to resort to going to law school uh, to you know, go for a professional degree. And even after going to law school was denied the jobs that she sought because she was a woman and because she was a mother. And so she and Birch Bayh of Indiana, the other senator who joined her, had this visionary uh, piece of legislation that realized like there's more work to do in the civil rights space. This is a civil right. And so that's another thing people don't always think about. This is a civil right, Title IX. And we had a lot of great progress in the 60s around the civil rights movement. But I think there was a recognition that, you know, Senator Mink and Senator Bayh and, and many others realized there are still a lot of folks that aren't able to experience, as you say in the law, the benefits of education because of gender. So thankfully, Title IX went uh, further um, to, to indeed protect those rights and, and create an entitlement, an entitlement that you should be able to fully access federally funded education regardless of your gender. So a lot of good things have happened. A lot of realizations are still ongoing. Um, and then just a fun fact, I think people sense there are, say, many more girls and women playing sports as a result of Title IX, and that's school-related sports. So you know, K-12 college university sports. Um, but just a fun fact and a celebration point is that Title IX passed in 1972. Um, there was about 300,000 girls playing high school sports in our country at that point. And now there's at least 3.4 million girls playing high school sports. And, and frankly, not, you know, it's as a result of the law. Yes, Title IX opened those doors, but I, I like to remind people, girls and women always wanted to play sports. They were always interested. It's just that the door was literally closed. And so it hasn't created the interest so much as, as made it possible to act on it. And I'm really proud of that and, and kind of a ambassador for Title IX in my work in that way. Mm. Wow. Uh, really appreciate that, that context, uh, Kim. And I think I'm, I'm still uh, try, trying to conceptualize in my head a picture of Patsy Mink and Senator Bai from, from Indiana uh, and Richard Nixon coming together <laughs> to, uh, to work on Title IX. In today's political context, it just feels like some kind of fictional thing that just could, <laughs> could never happen. But, um, you know, certain, certainly glad it did. Uh, and uh, excited that you mentioned um, the kind of transformative effects of Title IX on youth athletics uh, in this country. And I think it's fair to say that Title IX is, uh, is probably most, uh, as you mentioned, most closely associated with athletics and its impact on school-based athletics. And frankly, lots of folks probably didn't even know that it impacts anything other than sports. Um, 
But uh, for the sake of, of this question, we'd really love to go a little bit deeper into the issue of what have been the real transformative effects on athletics, um, school-based athletics, because of Title IX, and also where do you see there still uh, being work that needs to be done? Yeah, thank you. And, you know, just a flag, you know, as, as an attorney and someone who has been close to folks that enforce Title IX in lots of different ways, you know, for our audience out there, you know, just as a reminder, of course, Title IX covers more than athletics. So it is uh, combating gender-based sexual assault and harassment, for example, in a school or college and university context. So because of Title IX, we have rights to uh, proscribe that type of behavior in our educational environments that, that would impede someone pursuing an education. Another just a fun fact um, before getting into the athletic space is that uh, breastfeeding students, say in a college context, have Title IX rights for lactation accommodations, something that folks don't realize. Um, we also know, you know, um, staff members have Title IX rights that they may not be aware of as, you know, gender-based discrimination, again, say, teacher or professor or a janitor who works in a school, um, you know, would, would be able to avail themselves of, of Title IX rights. Um, so, and responsibilities, you know, thinking about the full circle that, you know, we want to know our rights and our responsibilities as folks who are working to enforce the law and folks who are trying to comply. Um, so, you know, if folks want more resources just to flag uh, Positive Coaching Alliance is in a, in a really close uh, partnership with Women's Sports Foundation, as well as the National Women's Law Center. And National Women's Law Center has a great deal of resources on Title IX that cover that gamut. So if you want to know, wait, what are my rights as a high school student under Title IX? In all those ways that gender comes into play, um, they have a ton of resources and I can point folks toward those. Um, so on the athletics front, you know, I think, you know, we've made a great deal of pro progress and we have a lot of work to do. Um, some of the things, as I mentioned, the numbers have literally just gone up um, with girls and women playing sports. Um, and let me just quickly add, I am a product of Title IX. You know, I, am, I, I don't know if you're supposed to disclose your age, but um, was born after Title IX was passed. And just a quick anecdote to show the progress, you know, knowing I'm just one person, but, but a tip of an iceberg is that my grandmother loved basketball. Um, she grew up in Kentucky and she couldn't play at all. And her brothers could play. And there was zero opportunity in her one room schoolhouse. And she never got to play in any type of school team. Um, and then my mom came along and was very athletically interested. And my grandmother said, Hey, I want you to have more than I had still title IX was not passed, but my grandmother managed to get my mom into a high school volleyball team. And their, their season was one weekend at this high school in, in Southern California. Wow. Um, Dang. so I said, mom, what was it like to play high school volleyball, you know, before title IX? And she said, well, we had one weekend of play. That was our entire season. Wow. <laughs> So just like perspective on like the length of a season mattering and that boys would maybe have like a 10 week season and girls would have one weekend, but she was happy to play. And then uh, Title IX actually was passed in February 1972, the same month that my mom was playing UCLA college volleyball and when she won a national championship uh, for UCLA. So she was kind of like pre and post Title IX. She was playing just as it was passed and she was privileged to have that opportunity as some colleges and universities were opening doors to women, but still not enough. And then I came along, you know, a few years after that, and I had a host of opportunities, park and rec, school base, elementary, middle, high school, college, and I got to play college volleyball. And I'm so grateful because I saw that progression through my grandmother and my mom's eyes that we've gotten so much more. 
Um, now, we know many more girls and women are playing, but we know that there's still doors closed to many girls, women, and people, um, regardless of their gender expression and identity. We know that we still have work to do. Um, and so some of the, the issues in the athletics field that we're working on is the fact that there are many girls, especially in low-income communities and communities of color, that are not getting that chance to play um, in, in the sports context. And so Title IX compliance and awareness is, is not there yet. And that's why the We're Not Done Yet title of the uh, Women's Sports Foundation report is, is important, that we want to celebrate this year, but we have a lot more to do. And what I love about this area of the law and Title IX discussion is that we have a lot of, as, as you say, like in the political climate, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of intractable uh, issues out there. But advancing Title IX and making sure that everybody, regardless of gender, can play sports and have an opportunity to run around and have fun and exercise and play and make friends and learn new skills, anyone can have that opportunity um, and we can actually uh, ensure it's afforded to everyone, regardless of gender, race, socioeconomics, location, ability, et cetera. And that's part of our Positive Coaching Alliance sort of goal is to make sure any kid can play and play in a positive environment. Um, so I focus in particular with our gender equity initiative on girls of color, women of color coaching, and making sure girls can play in higher numbers, especially in communities that are underserved um, and lacking resources. And, and we've seen in the reports over the last many years now that you know, girls of color and girls in low-income communities are still raising their hand saying, put me in coach, but there isn't a team to play on per se, or they might face um, pretty stark inequity compared to their you know, uh, boy counterparts. Yeah, and we'd love to ask you a little bit more about that. Actually, actually first, I would, I would love to point out that uh, any mention of a UCLA national championship um, earns extra credit here on all the above <laughs> because we, we love UCLA. We are the official uh, podcast of UCLA unofficially, unofficially, unofficially. Um, so in any case, so, so yeah, it's wonderful. And, and you mentioned some of the, some of the disproportionate um, outcomes of Title IX as, with regards to race. Now, of course, with all policies, all legislation, the devil's in the details. And on the surface, it, Title IX seems to be race and class neutral. Yet, as you just mentioned, um, a lot of times when that is the case, you do see uh, some disproportionalities in regard, with regards to the impact and the, the, the implementation of said policy. So you mentioned, for example, uh, girls of color having less access in certain areas to, to sports. We're wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, about some of the equity gaps that we see uh, presently within the implementation of Title IX and what you think should be done to address those gaps. Yeah. Well, they definitely exist. And, and frankly, it's heartbreaking to see those barriers in real life. I mean, I'm a youth sports coach to kids and girls, and I, I hear the stories like out on the field. I do soccer, basketball, you know, different, whatever sport they need. And the girls saying, you know, I want to play soccer, but I don't have a team to play on. And often it is a, a neighborhood city town where the resources are, are strained, you know, and there's already not enough to go around. Uh, but what I see viscerally in my work is uh, girls of color in low-income areas just having a pretty barren landscape, like, like as in, you know, middle or high school, okay, maybe you have three levels of boys basketball and you have one of girls basketball and they're turning away girls who are trying out. Um, even though I like to compare in title nine, it's like you would give 50% of the, uh, of the lockers, the academic lockers to boys and 50% to girls in the class. But what we see in the stats is that boys are often getting like 60% of the lockers or athletic slots to play. And girls are getting like 40% on average across the country of the, of, and I talk about lockers or seats at the cafeteria, like 
why would we give more athletic seats to boys versus girls when we wouldn't do that in the cafeteria? You know, because everyone's equally interested in that experience of school. Um, so, you know, I just try and think about this as educational resources that are publicly funded. And, you know, with a sport opportunity, it doesn't have to be fancy, but, you know, a uniform, a chance to play at the gym, a basketball or a softball or a baseball or a soccer ball, you know, these are resources that our taxpayer dollars fund. And so we want to think about like, we wouldn't give more of the playground to boys than girls. Why would we give, you know, more teams or more resources to, to boys versus girls, which is still happening in, in many communities. And in, in terms of say communities of color where girls are look, you know, looking for more equity, they, they're demanding more equity. Um, the other, the other issues, I mean, it's complex, right? Because I, I don't think there's an intentionality around the inequity. I think that oftentimes there's cultural or kind of social mores at, at play where girls maybe didn't get a chance to play in the, in the young, young years in park and rec, there wasn't a culture of like girls basketball. And then by the time they get to middle or high school, they're not saying I want to play because they didn't get that chance when they were seven, eight, nine, like the boys did. And so they kind of stopped trying. Um, or they don't think of themselves in that athletic space. So there's like attitudes and um, context matters a great deal. So the good news is in, in communities I've worked in, including in LA, um, Los Angeles has a great uh, raise the bar program for girls in park and rec sports to get involved. And there's some really easy ways that I've seen, especially in communities of color, girls get involved, like seeing yourself in a flyer. Like if you're running a, a basketball league um, at your middle school, to show pictures of girls active in the flyer and not just boys and, you know, kids of any gender, very powerful. And, you know, I just try to remind people, like, imagine if 24 hour fitness didn't put any pictures of women in their advertisements, like they probably wouldn't get women signing up for the gym. Right. And so they want a broad paying clientele. And I think we need to bring that same kind of outreach to our park and rec and school-based sports is like, make sure you're, you're answering the call of your community. And so um, sports selection is another issue where, middle and high school, um, you know, programs have succeeded with particularly girls of color by saying, what do you want to play? Um, I see that not, it's not asked enough. It's like, and then, oh, you don't want to play tackle football. You want volleyball. Okay. Why don't we put some time and effort into a volleyball program and not assume we know what you want? Let's ask and, and tailor. And of course, you know, boys and kids of any gender and girls should all have opportunity. Um, it does, it's just not one size fits all is what I, I think is important. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, very much appreciate that, Kim. And I, and I actually want to ask a little bit of a follow-up on that because a, a devil's advocate, um, if that's even the right phrase to use in this moment, but uh, uh, I think a disingenuous retort that I, that I sometimes hear to uh, some of the issues you were just naming has to do with the, the sport that was nearest and dearest to my heart as a, as a kid, which was football which for the most part across the country is only played by boys or, or the overwhelming majority of players is are boys and, and young men um, and is of course a sport with a huge team that's expensive to play. And uh, I hear people say things like, well, you know, because of football, that that's the root of the inequities, right? Is this sport that has tons of kids involved that costs lots of money and that's the root of the issue. And so we have to sort of look at it through that lens. How would you, how do you respond to, to that type of an argument? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up football. Um, you know, 
I, I'm a fan. I watch, you know, the San Francisco almost got there <laughs> um, a little bit ago. And I, I've, you know, gone to games and, and support school cultures that, that are supportive of football and all sports. I'm, I'm actually kind of a sports agnostic or, you know, I'm very ecumenical about sports in the sense that I love them all. I played them all. I appreciate them all. Even the ones I'm bad at and don't know well, like a badminton, you know, it's like I've seen schools with incredible badminton teams. And, and I just love that it's different each region, each area. Um, but I think this notion that football is really expensive and sort of needs priority or it depends on who you ask, like what they think should happen. But I think we should, you know, a couple things about Title IX that are kind of, I think, really cool. Uh, to be honest, and and for educators out there, you know, working Title IX knowledge into your curriculum can be really powerful, and it's so fun. It's like doing a report or doing a project or fact finding at your school about Title IX is really a neat way to learn um, and apply. So with football, here's a fun fact: like Title IX doesn't require equal dollars to be spent on you know boys and say girls, you know, just just using that as an example, sport. So you could have football, and it, it also doesn't require certain sports to be played. So it wouldn't be like you have to have girls football if you have boys football. It's very sensible. The law and its drafters, go Patsy Mink and Birch Bay, were really bright about needing flexibility. So it's okay that football's expensive per se, because it's not about equal dollars. It's about quality. So there's something neat about that because um, you know a, a cross-country runner may need a very simple uniform or, you know, volleyball or whatever, you know, swimming. I think the swimming uniform might be the smallest and the cheapest compared to football. Um, but a football uniform, it has a lot of components as does lacrosse, like, or gymnastics, like, you know, it's okay if it's more expensive, it just got to be equal quality um, or equitable in quality. So there's just a sensible aspect to it, it, it you know, that, that, Title IX doesn't force anyone to play, doesn't force certain sports. It's just saying if you're going to, so I, I guess you can compare it. Like if a school had a robotics team, I mean, it's okay to have an expensive robotics team and all that goes into that, but that doesn't mean you take away resources from everyone else or don't give the English classes, you know, literature and textbooks and, you know, books to read. You just make sure that the robotics is quality and the English textbooks are quality. They don't have to be the same. Um, and then the other quick kind of fun fact that I like to share is that with football, sometimes in any sport, frankly, there's community members that are passionate about that team or that program and they want to donate. And I'd be curious your thoughts on this as educators and, and leaders in education. So they want to donate and they're like, oh, I want to give new helmets to this boys football program. We're so proud of them. And that's great. Donate. We need that. Right. But what happens is they donate to a boys program like that and don't think about the girls side. And it doesn't have to be football. It could be girls basketball, girls softball, but to equalize the donation. And so Title IX says donations are OK, but the school and the, the district has to kind of referee the donations. And I try to remind people, imagine if um Microsoft was going to give free laptops to only boys and not to girls. Oh, we're so proud of these boys. They should have these great laptops. Well, every principal would say, wait, no, we can't just give these laptops to boys and not to girls in this third grade or ninth grade classroom. So we need to step in and say, that's great, but let's make sure everybody benefits. Okay. So that's another reminder about football, but I think football is great. And, you know, I've seen really healthy high schools with a strong football program have a great girls lacrosse program that they're equally proud of and they equally support. And there's ways to do that. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate your thoughts there. Um, so much of your work, Kim, uh, at the Positive Coaching Alliance centers around expanding opportunities and pathways for 
uh, folks identifying as women and girls to be able to pursue opportunities uh, for coaching. And um, even though there's probably lots of connection between those people who grew up playing sports uh, as an athlete and those who become coaches, there is, you know, a, a little bit of an important distinction there in terms of uh, the question we often think about on this type of show, which is who are the people who are in teaching type positions with uh, with our students uh, across the country. So wondering if you can share with us a little bit about where you see or have seen the impacts of Title IX on uh, the coaching landscape today. And, um, you know, of course, we, we have seen progress in, in, you know, sort of anecdotal ways, at least at some of the highest levels with, you know, some women coaching in the NFL or the NBA or that sort of thing. But yet we still see large numbers of men coaching in uh, girls and women's sports at, at all levels. So I wonder if you can just share a little bit with us about where you've seen the impacts of Title IX on the coaching landscape and, and what do we still need to work on um, with regard to that uh, in terms of gender equity. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and at Positive Coaching Alliance, we do have a relatively new gender equity initiative. And one of our focal points is getting more women coaches of color into the coaching ranks. Um, just a quick fact, which is broader than schools, but encompasses schools, it really, is that youth coaches um, are about 25% women, um, those who identify as women. One quarter, you know, it's really small. And I think we know, all of us, a great, you know, strong, influential woman in our lives who is an athlete or maybe isn't an athlete who would be a great coach. And, and we know coaches are mentors. Coaches are character developers. I mean, because often they're teachers too, right? The coach teacher is, is an incredible hero in our world who takes on so much to teach kids, not just in the classroom, but beyond. And we all know that athletic lenses um, provide kids a nice alternative when they're, you know, maybe not connecting sometimes with the school. It's through the coach, it's through the sport that they might get that traction with their educational experience that it motivates them to study harder, to stay in school, to keep up the GPA. As we do see athletes oftentimes, especially girls who play sports, staying in school longer, graduating at higher rates. And just a fun fact, girls who play sports in high school make higher wages as adults, according to one economist, Betsy Stevenson, 7% higher wages compared to non-athlete peers. So we know that, that um, coaches are like helping girls get earning power as adults. Um, so, so in terms of the coaching landscape and gender equity, um, we do know we need more women coaches. Um, many want to coach, but they're facing discrimination and inequity institutionally sometimes. Um, you know, for example, I know at the college level, there's been a number of conversations about LGBTQIA discrimination amongst women coaches. Um, as well as pay inequity um, and, and other things that I think, frankly, again, like folks in a school or college or university context can think about. It's not just about pay. It's about um, the treatment. So I've seen a bunch of situations where, say, a woman coach has a, a desk that's really far away from the field or court or lacking bathroom access or no computer, but maybe the men's coach has computer access and, and tape and film that, that they can use for their program. So it's like the kit and caboodle that goes into a coach's experience. So we want to think in gender equity terms, what is the experience of your women and men coaches and any coach? And is it equitable? And, and think about all of it, you know, um, even access to training rooms and ice and whirlpools and you know, those things are really important and they really add to equity or subtract if it's not indeed equitable. 
Um, and, you know, Katie Sowers, to your point about pro teams, Katie Sowers in the NFL and Lindsay Gottlieb in the NBA, it's great to see more women in high level pro positions in the women's pro teams and men's, you know, just, just a flag national women's soccer league, the WNBA. I mean, to me, I can't emphasize, emphasize enough the power of seeing women pros, which I didn't have growing up. Like, you know, when I was a kid, turn on the TV, there was no women's pro. I mean, maybe women's golf, I guess. And like, I love, I love golf, but you know, to see women basketball players, you know, now regularly every season, every year, Olympic women, um, gold medals, CA USA, we're getting a lot of those now. Um, it's amazing. So, so I just would say we need more women coaches. We need more women coaches of color. Um, it's just not enough at the college and pro level. And it comes through dismantling discrimination and inequity, um, being aware, um, spotting the issues and, and addressing them. And so if a woman coach in, in the school says, Hey, I, I don't have a desk, but head football coach does. Well, we can fix that. That's not impossible. That's totally doable. There's lots of ways. I love that. I love that. And I don't know if anybody at the WNBA listens to all of the above, but if they do, um, I would like to point out that we need a bigger, a bigger all-star MVP trophy next season because that was, <laughs> that was embarrassing. That it's all was about the luck. trophy. <laughs> Man. So, so as we think about 50 years of Title IX, it seems that we're living at a time where on the one hand, we're able to see the benefits and reap some of the rewards of the struggles of our ancestors and what folks fought for in the past. At the same time as seeing backlash and regression in many of the gains that have been made. So as we think about Title IX, or as you view Title IX in the context of history, um, what's your view or understanding of where we're at? And what do you think is the future or should be the future of this really pivotal piece of legislation. Yeah. Well, you know, in terms of how people talk about it, I do think that we're we're improving and that I think more and more people do understand the law, but still huge swaths of students and parents and guardians don't know what it is. Um, and frankly, even staff, I think, you know, there's, we should have Title IX coordinators in all of our districts across the country, according, you know, to Department of Education, Office for Civil Rights. But oftentimes, we don't know who the Title IX coordinator is, or maybe I've even seen studies where the Title IX coordinator didn't know it was themselves. <laughs> they hadn't been told wow. that they wow. had that role. Yeah. And, and, or they're wearing a lot of hats and a lot of empathy for a, a school folks and administrators who are just wearing so many hats. And it's like a lot, you know, to then get Title IX training and learn all the specifics of, you know, it is a simple 37 word law, but it's actually, it's off, it's complex as well. And there's a lot of regulations that have come out since 1972 there's um, in the athletic space, dear colleague letters, which some people might know about, that give guidance about like how to apply the law. And, and one of my passions is education, you know, about Title IX. How do we make it approachable and interesting and, you know, sort of digestible? Um, though I'm an attorney, I actually pride myself on trying to break it down in really simple terms, like, you know, that an athletic director, a coach, a principal, a superintendent, anyone, a, you know, a girl, a high school girl, could understand. Um, so, you know, luckily Positive Coaching Alliance actually has just put out some Title IX explainers with the WNBA. Yay. They were partners with us just a couple months ago. We started this really fun project of trying to explain to a coach. We have a coach version and we have a youth version. So, um, and they're just like quick infographics, like what is Title IX? How does it work in athletics? So do um, share those out. And then the other thing I wish people thought more about is the culture change that needs to happen. So it's one thing to comply with the law, to enforce Title IX, to make the schools or colleges and universities gender equitable. It's another to change the culture so that we're 
invested, you know, long-term. So it's not just, I have to give girls basketball space in the gym. No, we want to, because this is co-curricular. It's part of that girl and, and, and those kids' education that they get that chance to play and exercise. We know kids learn better if they have that chance to play, exercise, be with teammates. Um, so I, I hope that in the future, we think more about, you know, like the positives of Title IX and not the mandate. And I hope in the future, in some ways, we don't talk about it as much because it's a given. It's like, of course, you know, I actually had a case a couple of years ago where girls didn't have a locker room and boys did. And, and you know, no one questioned it. It was like, oh, yeah, that's just the way it is here. And, and that is really where we need to move from. It's like, no, we need everyone to say this isn't right. We can fix it. It's not rocket science. It's not that hard. And in, in years to come, we'll laugh at, well, laugh about it, hopefully, because it's like, how could that happen? We're way past it now. So, so, and luckily I do see a lot of school folks and administrators and families and students and, you know, everybody kind of coming together to say, Hey, why is the softball field worse than this baseball field? We can fix it. And here's a cool explainer from the WNBA that explains how to start. You know, that's one of our PCA positive coaching Alliance goals is to give people tools, like Here's some tools on how to get more women coaches in your program, what Title IX is, how to keep girls in program so that they feel good and keep coming back to practicing games. So we have a ton of tools and resources. Yeah. Well, we will make sure to uh, link to the PCA website and some of those resources uh, right below uh, today's episode for all of our listeners and viewers who might be interested after this conversation in both learning more about your work at uh, PCA Kim and also, uh, as you said, just becoming better educated, generally speaking, about uh, about Title IX and, and its role and impact uh, in America's education landscape. So uh, thanks so much for that. And um, sadly, uh, Kim, we have come to the end uh, of our conversation <sighs> today. Too soon. Uh, but uh, yeah, too soon, too soon. I, I would really like to thank you, though, for uh, for joining us today. I think, um, you know, we, we exist in this world where uh, I think as educators, the vast majority of people are aware that Title IX exists and kind of conceptually what it's about. But really, we often don't have conversations with great depth about the, the kind of full range of things that Title IX should impact. Um, and, you know, both about what it is doing and how it is shaping the world around us and also uh, the work we still need to do to fully realize the, the vision of, of Patsy Mink uh, and others of a, you know, a, a future with real gender equity in, in our educational uh, context. So Kim Turner from the Positive Coaching Alliance, thanks so much for joining us today on All the Above. Thank you for having me, it was an absolute pleasure. All right, folks, that's it for today's seminar. Uh, thanks for joining us. Stay tuned though, next up is our Class Dismissed. All right, folks, we have come to that time in our episode. It's the very end where before we go, we like to pause and give some love, some shout outs and celebrate some good news out here in the world of education. It is our class dismissed. Manuel, what we got today? 
Well, Jeff, um, based on when this episode posts, for many, many folks, including myself, this will be the week that we return to the classroom. And with so much discussion out there about the teacher shortage, with so much discussion out there about how incredibly difficult it is to be, to work in education generally and to be a classroom teacher specifically right now amid the pandemic, amid the constant, constant attacks on our profession, um, it's a, it's a incredibly bold step to go back into the classroom. And we wanna salute all the classroom teachers out there who are returning to the classroom amid all the challenges that are out there. And we just wanna wish everybody a fantastic, fantastic school year. Now, those who made the decision to not return to the classroom, salute you too, because uh, obviously, obviously that is a, a very legitimate and proper choice for so many of us out there. But uh, for myself and the other folks who are going back to the classroom, this is, Man, this is year 19 for me, and I know there's a lot of folks who watch our show and listen for whom year 19 was quite a while ago. And we know there's a lot of folks who are watching or listening who are in year two or three who really came up in the profession during the pandemic, which I, is just unimaginable to me. So salute to everybody out there across across all the years, across all the years of experience and all that who are going back into the classroom. Do remember that the young people in the classroom, it, it's, it's just not their fault. All these challenges that we're facing, all the attacks on our curriculum, attacks on the profession, uh, the pandemic, of course, all the challenges that we're seeing globally around the world. It's just not the fault of these young people. So salute to everybody that's going back into the classroom to help these young people make sense of the world and to learn and to grow and be great humans. Shout out to all of y'all classroom teachers as we head back to school. Yeah, absolutely. Well well said, Dr. Rustin. I think the, the only thing I would add to that is also a parallel shout out to all of the educators. My principals out there, my assistant principals, office techs, custodial yeah. staff, food service staff, nurses, psychologists, social workers, okay, college counselors, bus drivers. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting some of school aides, campus aides, all paraprofessionals, everybody out here who makes school run. Welcome back. We need you and we, we salute you today. So thank you, folks. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you did, please communicate that to us in a couple of ways. Please go to aotashow.com. There you can find the links to all of our media on all the platforms, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, like, follow, subscribe, share it with like three friends. That's it, not five, just three friends, okay? Uh, help us build a, an even greater following for all the above. Um, every little bit uh, really does help folks um, and you know helps these algorithms get us into the right hands of educators and folks interested in education out there who might wanna be a part of this larger AOTA family. So thanks so much, folks. Hope you enjoyed it today. We'll see you next week. Yeah.